my God. Wait a minute. It's Paul Bear. That's got to be. That's got to be Kane. My God, Kane. My God. That's Paul White. Yes. That's Paul White. That's Goldberg King. That's Goldberg. He's here in Seattle. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. To eat, sleep, suplex, retweet. Welcome to Raw is Jericho! Hello and welcome everyone to another feature show from us, wrestling's very own Blazing Squad. It's eat, sleep, suplex, retweet. I am your host. My name is Chris Murray, and we're diving into a really big one today. We're going to be picking out our favorite wrestling debuts. Now, the good news for everyone is this is my first official time hosting. The first two were stand-ins, saw record numbers, and my third attempt, I am here properly for the very first time. The bad news is I have coronavirus, so after all the coughs that make it into the edit, this will probably be the last of the three. Um, but before I introduce the panel, quick reminder that you can catch all of our episodes on Spotify, you can watch all of our videos on YouTube, and discovered this one today, guys, you can shout, play, eat, sleep, suplex, retweet at your smart speaker. I did it to my uh, Google Home earlier today. Just started hearing Scott McLeod. Loved it. It's just halfway through an old episode. Don't, however, shout play ESSR. I tried that and it just played a song called Essence instead. <laughs> so <laughs> it's a start. Guys, I couldn't go at this alone. So joining me today, we have three wrestlers making their debuts. In one corner, we have the road dog. He came into the group to test our microphones. He was part of some fantastic teams. I haven't seen him in a while before now. And the last I heard, he was making a big splash behind the scenes. It's Daniel Campbell. Oh, are you referring to my YouTube exploits? Is that what you're <laughs> referring to? Daniel, I've actually been like, I was thinking of a way. I was like, I wanted to praise your behind the scenes work. Mm -hmm. either that or go down the route of you being an excellent guitar player i can literally see guitars in the background and i was going to go man mountain rock do you do you yeah. know him from the like the mid 90s he was in that you know like the worst year of wwf in history he was in wwf then yeah that was probably the year i was born so no i wouldn't have known <laughs> that there's only a few people i see playing guitar in wwe that actually do it pretty well so it's a very small pool but <laughs> I'll, I'll take what we have and uh, Daniel, I was on your first show. So how do you think that your ESSR debut went? Um, how's the best way I can describe this? <laughs> Comparable to the shopmaster falling through the wall <laughs> or the first time on UK soil that Santino Morella uses the swan. Swan! swan! <laughs> I love it. So Listen to the best and worst modern finishers <laughs> for the reference. <laughs> And you heard her there. In the next corner, we have Trish Stratus, one of the best females of her generation, despite there not being very much competition. However, she will turn on you in a heartbeat to get closer to Christian. It's Sarah Grieve, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, yeah, I would, I would absolutely. I would probably sacrifice you all 
<laughs> if it means getting close to Christian and like you know, God forbid, you're all like brothers to me, but no. Uh, Sarah, you predate my involvement in ESSR significantly. Do you remember how your first show went and what it was? Uh, yeah, I, I do remember. Um, I remember not speaking pretty much for the first half of the show. <laughs> um, but my debut show was when one of our early years, and it was the Power Couples of Wrestling that oh. um, that I debuted on. So. It was quite a far bit back, maybe about three years ago now. But yeah, I didn't speak for like the first half of the show because it was anything from like the 80s to like the early 90s. And I, I did not watch wrestling then. So I was so, so useless. Excellent. Okay, finally, in the last corner, we have Christopher Daniels. He's been here a long time. No one really remembers his debut, but I made everyone really happy when he finally won the big one. And his kids are named after AJ Styles. It's Alan McLuckett. <laughs> <laughs> I actually two debuts on this yes. podcast. Okay. So the very first one was during the Beast in the East. And where I stayed didn't have proper internet. So I was on Tinsel Wi-Fi. <laughs> and it was a, the first show in The Undertaker. And because my Tinsel Wi-Fi was that bad, it cut out. So I missed the entire first half of the show. Ah. And just to give you an idea how bad it was, if we were streaming something on our Android box, everything is connected to be turned off. Our phones, our tablets, laptops, the Skybox, everything. We couldn't have anything. So basically, for the last half of that show, my wife basically just sat in the living room in darkness. Just so <laughs> I could. <laughs> and then I had my, the first debut face-to-face. And I can't actually remember what it was, but I just remember walking in and Stephen went, God, you're smartly dressed. And I was like, oh, thanks. Can I come my three-piece suit for my work? I, I know it wasn't WCW. I know that. And it wasn't the quiz case. The very first quiz we did live, I was shit-faced still. We <laughs> uh, <laughs> <in> last. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. There we go. This is what we need. And you've proved it yourself. We all know the importance of a first impression. If there's one thing we've learned from job interviews or family gatherings or Tinder is that the importance of a first impression is immeasurable. A good first impression is the difference between Mr. Perfect and the Red Rooster, Kevin Nash and Fake Diesel, and of course, Typhoon and the Shockmaster. So guys, we're going to do this in two ways. First of all, let's get everyone's favorite debut moments. And then later on, we're going to go around everyone's favorite debut eras. And I'll explain a bit more about that second one in a little while. So kicking us off, we're going to try and do them chronologically, except for me. I'll go last because I'm some... <laughs> it just made sense. I was like, get those guys out of the way first. Kicking us off, Daniel. I mean, where else could we start? You've picked out one of the most iconic debut moments of all time. So we're going to go back to a, a rather forgotten period in WWE's history. They don't talk about it as much. Survivor Series 1990. And... The big main event match of the night. It's the million dollar corporation against whatever the hell Dusty Rhodes team was called. I can't remember off the top of my head. The build up to this match has been that Ted DiBiase is going to reveal a mystery partner. No one has heard of this mystery partner. We don't know who it could be. And when everyone's in the ring, DiBiase utters the magic words. I would like to introduce to you from Death Valley, The Undertaker. Next thing we know. The camera cuts over to the curtain where this giant, nearly seven foot tall figure in a trench coat and a Western hat just walks his way to the ring slowly. 
you can instantly tell from how the cameras are just looking up at him he is a presence that there were kids in the audience sat there just like is, is that actually a guy is that a zombie and he had this presence right off the bat he takes off the hat and just gives this deathly look to the opposition and he decimates the team like we all know of course he annihilates coco beware with the first tombstone in terms of his actual exit from the match he was not pinned he was not made to submit he was instead counted out so he didn't lose his debut he came in kicked some ass dug a hole took a soul and left <laughs> now if you ask me that is how you debut someone yeah this is um of course one of the most significant debuts if you ask any wrestling fan if they've seen this, almost all of them have. I think it was Dusty Rhodes was the other one he eliminated and then eventually he just gets counted out because, you know, what a better way to, to sort of take him out of the picture while still making him look good. He went on, a, a, I know, a, a bit of a tear for a year and before you knew it, he was WWF champion, beating Hulk Hogan and supposedly breaking his neck. The Undertaker was a phenomenal, phenomenal debut. Uh, Alan, were you watching wrestling at this time? Is this before your time, 1990? I'm guessing so. You're too youthfully, youthful looking to be <laughs> watching wrestling. I time. knew you were my favourite presenter. No, I, <laughs> I was, uh, I didn't actually get into wrestling until, until the late 90s. But 99 I got into wrestling. But looking back at the run the take I had, and obviously as regarded, probably is the best of all time. I think it's a very strong pick from Dan. This was in this weird period where Hulk Hogan was still this, like most of the star that he was, but his star had massively faded. And, you know, we're around the time when Ric Flair came in and uh, Hulk Hogan's match was said. So the WWF needed new big stars, like big physical stars. And I think they definitely made one very early on with the introduction of The Undertaker. Say that everyone has seen this video a, a million billion times. That clip of Rowdy Roddy Piper shouting, look at the size of that ham hack, will be stuck in my head for all time. But yeah, what did you make of this moment, the introduction of The Undertaker? Um, well, I, I was not even born when this <laughs> happened. Like, I was born in, like, in the April after that. Debuting at one of the biggest pay-per-views, it's a good one to go by. And obviously introducing as a heel character, the video that does get shown instantaneously again like any sort of celebration of undertaker you can't really do anything without putting that clip in the thing is right the undertaker obviously went on to be one of the biggest stars in the history of wrestling if not the biggest star but what i always think is, is interesting is that when you look at the history of a lot of these stars their sort of debuts are never huge like this like triple h didn't have a massive introduction Austin, when he first came in as the ringmaster to the WWF, didn't have a massive introduction. The Undertaker just totally dwarfed these guys from the moment he stepped in. And I guess that's probably one of the reasons why he was one of the biggest guys in wrestling for the next 30 years. Daniel, I, I wasn't watching wrestling at this time either. My first proper memories of The Undertaker were like Biker Taker. American Badass, do you hold that era of his character in as high regard as this one? Well, Baker Taker was the first Undertaker I properly got to experience. Mm -hmm. um, I think my wrestling knowledge came in the last year of Big Evil before he reverted back to the Deadman character. But from what I saw of The Undertaker, I knew this was the same guy who, in all the promo clips, they show him as this undead nightmare, murdering everyone, flying over top ropes with fire, shooting up after him. <laughs> you know, just casual stuff as you do. 
I knew that he had this interesting backstory with Paul Bearer and brothers who get burned in you know funeral homes, just usual family drama stuff, really. <laughs> and then he reverts back to the dead man, and that was my first proper glimpse of what Undertaker could be. Obviously, he had evolved it into the era that he was in, but that was a, the, one of the best parts about Undertaker's character was he always found a way to adapt. When he came in at first, it was very almost zombie-like. He wouldn't do a lot of flashy moves. If he did, it would be the talking point of that match. Then as years go on, he expands his moveset. He decides to be a bit more fluid with his movement. And then, you know, you fast forward to like 2009, he puts on the match of the year of Shawn Michaels. You know, it's it's a great progression all the way through. And then even, you know, the last proper match he had, Extreme Bulls 2019 with Reigns against McIntyre and McMahon, you know, he could still go. You know, obviously not to the same standard as we all knew, but Taker could still go and he could still adapt. So that was... You know, something that you saw very quickly as he debuted and even you know going further onwards. I think the, the only issue with The Undertaker is the fact that he came in so hot that there's all these periods in wrestling history where it's almost like they didn't know what to do with him because he was so high on the card from that first moment. There's all these periods in like the mid-90s where he's just like fighting jobbers because it's like, well, there's only so many times you can put him in the world title scene. And especially if you've got guys like Shawn Michaels hogging the belt for so long of that. But nevertheless, we all collectively love The Undertaker. I think that is quite evident. See the many, many shows and the ESSR back catalogue that talk all about him. And hopefully in there somewhere, you can find that really good Best Undertaker matches show that never made it on air because Kwaku or someone forgot to record. It was a sad day. Um, rest in peace. Anyway, moving on, we're going to fast forward now. We're going to move from 1990 all the way 26 years on to 2016. I'm sure there was good debuts in the middle, but we're going to skip those for just now. Alan, we were on the AJ Styles show together talking about how much we loved AJ Styles. And we were on the World Champions show together talking about how much we loved AJ Styles. Just to completely change the subject for a second... What was your favourite impactful debut? Well, take a look at the trifecta. <laughs> AJ Styles, of course. Let's begin. He comes into the Royal Rumble. We all know we get the odd surprise every year. You know, this year with Christian, you know, is one. The, what made it his so amazing was there's always been rumours, right? See, since the digital age came in, there's always been rumours of such and such score here, such and such there. This, this is really happen. But there was never any credible sources, nothing concrete about this. And basically, this is the first time social media actually failed to actually predict something, which was great, because social media bugs the life of me when it ruins all these spoilers and such and such going near and there. And you're like, just stop. You're just ruining the moment. Let the moment happen. And then you can talk about it all we found out six months ago, whatever. But genuinely, nobody had a clue. And I'll stand corrected in this, but I believe he's the first person from the Indies slash Rivals who didn't go to NXT, came straight in to the main roster, and what a time to come in. 2016 Royal Rumble, where it's one versus all for the world title, and Roman's left in the ring. And then the next thing, every, you hear the buzzer go, you hear this music, everyone's like, what the hell is this? And out he comes, and he was the first person in the digital age in the wrestling sector to break the internet. 
Nobody else has done it the same way. And I, I doubt we'll ever be replicated again. He had a phenomenal performance in the Rumble itself. He lasted around the half hour mark. He had a couple of good eliminations. He stood toe-to-toe with the best WWE he had. And he put a lot of them to shame, to be fair. And then you're just talking about the momentum he carried for it. I mean, the guy lost at WrestleMania two, three months later and it still didn't have to affect his momentum. It didn't make sense for him to lose to Jericho, but he still had this momentum. He's still been at the front runner of all the main shows, all the main pay-per-views, and he got involved in the tag matches, the six-man tag matches. He was around with Cena quite a lot. You know, eight months in his, in his first year, his first title... And usually, you know, somebody comes into the main roster, they get maybe a mid-card title or the tag titles. No, he goes and gets the big one. He was the WWE champion within eight months, beating Ambrose. And, you know, his, his run has just been spectacular the way. And I know people go on about his year-long run, you say, oh, but it wasn't the best. Well, you actually look who you actually fought against. He had just some quality opponents. It's just it's the writing from the writers has just been poor. It's just poor storytelling from the writer's perspective, not him working with all the other people. And also, within five years, I mean, it was five years and five months to the date he debuted. And he's also a Grand Slam champion. He's won the lot. How many wrestlers have we seen go and have never made it? John Cena, arguably most successful wrestler of all time, is still not a Grand Slam champion. Undertaker's not even a Grand Slam champion. Never won the Intercontinental title. But he's been there and he's done it. And by the way, this talking about Undertaker there, he was the guy who managed to give Undertaker the match he wanted to finish his career. And it was a brilliant way to end WrestleMania last year considering what happened around the world. And as we all know, I am probably the biggest AJ Styles fan in the world in this pod. You know, I absolutely adore the man. I think he's amazing. If I had one-tenth of everything in him about him, I'd be so much better at everything in life and I think he has to be in this because look at what he's done for the company look at what he's done for you know a lot of the wrestlers that are coming you know stacks not about guys that aren't the biggest well guys that him Daniel Bryan are setting the path for people they're not the big rip tight to be the top guys the guy has to be in it the guy is just incredible and I've said it before I'll say it again for me he is the greatest of them all yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, we have spoken extensively very, very recently on how much we both love AJ Styles. I've loved him from the moment I set eyes on him in TNA. Don't want to bang him, but I do think he's a great wrestler. Um, <laughs> but the thing was, is like he was there from day one for me in TNA. And I was obviously never exposed to New Japan while he was there because that was sort of pre-New Japan's English language era and I never saw him in Ring of Honor because Ring of Honor is shite so finally when he got to WWE I got to experience like him debuting somewhere and that moment and just being able to be a part of that huge reaction to that I was with some of the ESSR guys in sports bar rest in peace this actually properly dragged me back to WWE for a good while like I began watching the pay-per-views again not just the the big ones for the first time in years Sarah, what did you make of this debut and this massive, massive star of TNA, New Japan, Ring of Honor and everywhere else? Did you ever see him joining WWE? Not at that particular moment, actually, because um, I remember I did read stuff saying that there was rumours that he was going to be leaving New Japan for WWE. And I was like, yeah, I'd never watched New Japan up until recently, but I did watch TNA every now and again. So I was familiar with who AJ Styles was and like the whole phenomenal thing about it. 
like I said, like you painted such a beautiful picture. Like I remember sitting back and watching this. It was the first pay per view that uh, well, it was the first Royal Rumble match that I had watched live because obviously network was up and running and all that sort of stuff. So he came in with this new music and you're like, don't know who the hell this person is. But as soon as you saw the words "I am phenomenal," that's when everything clicked and you're just like, holy crap, they've they've actually got him. Like it was a big surprise just because. Even though like Dave Meltzer and everything did report on it, it went dead for like those two weeks or something. Um, like between AJ leaving just after uh, just after New Year's Dash uh, in New Japan to the end of January for Royal Rumble, it was a very very big moment, and that's when you sort of knew that WWE were kind of wanting to sort of take things seriously. Like they're like they got this really big sign in. This big indie darling that obviously Triple H did not send through NXT when that was technically the developmental. AJ already had like the TV experience, luckily, with um, being on TNA. So I think that definitely did help. And obviously, like Alan says, he, he went on to have like one of the best like debut runs and even becoming like the face of SmackDown because it was that year that the draft happened as well. It just goes to show that he, his impact was really, like, well, his debut was really impactful. Um, because I haven't heard a pop like that in ages. I mean, up until you know Christian returned this year, and the, the <laughs> um, there there would have been a pop if there had been people. But yeah, it's it's a really really good pick from Alan. I mean, the crowd reaction for that and like Roman Reigns even still not going, who the hell's that? Like, don't recognize music. It's it's a new person. That's a very, very similar thing to what happened when CM Punk returned with Cult of Personality. Like, no one recognises music. And that's what gives it an extra oomph, I think. Yeah, I remember that Raw when CM Punk came back and all of a sudden he had Loving Colours as music. And I remember what, what doesn't get shown in, like, those promo packages is Cult of Personality played for about three minutes before he came out. And everyone was just like, I don't know what this song is. You touched on something which I feel we haven't spoken about enough on this show. WWE obviously has gone through this phase of signing all these indie darlings to to just beef their roster. And I think I read recently that before the pandemic happened, they had 220 contracted wrestlers pre-AEW, pre-COVID. That was the state of the way things were. All of these guys, when they got signed from the indies, obviously on the indies, they didn't have multi-camera set up, beautiful produced weekly shows. They might have had the occasional thing uh, maybe in Ring of Honor or, or like, you know, some of these other wrestling companies in the US do have like TV deals, but none of them were anywhere near the production level of TNA. We've spoken, I think, on either a TNA show or a world champion show about how TNA might have not had the audience that some other companies had, but they had the production values, which I think really helped AJ when he turned up in WWE. And and Daniel, I do think that it did take AJ a bit of time to properly get used to the WWE. And I think when he first came in and he still had his like soccer mom haircut, I wasn't quite used to him for a little while. But I think once he got the band together and once he won the title of Ambrose, he sort of found himself. And uh, like, let's face it, this moment was just really, really special. What did you think? You say that as if he hasn't got rid of the soccer mom haircut, which is interesting. <laughs> it's um, longer now, so it's, it's better. <laughs> be fair, he does need to cut it now. He needs to go yeah. short. Like it, it is still a soccer mom haircut, whatever way you put it. <laughs> Polish a shite, it will still be a shite. So if you look at how his debut was, he came in and he very much just like took that moment in. 
in that first wee while, you can tell he was trying to kind of adjust to the whole WWE aesthetic of things. The good thing is with how TNA ran their shows, some of it was very similar. AJ actually was learning as he went and we got to see that process. And it was actually quite a lovely thing to see. Sure enough, as he gets to having the club with him, winning the WWE Championship, he had fully acclimated at that point. Yeah. Alan is is so interesting being able to find new ways to talk about how great AJ Styles is after doing it for three weeks. What did you think of his, that first period of AJ Styles? Because it, it definitely felt like things were different. This wasn't TNA AJ mm. Styles turn up. It helped that he went away to New Japan, turned into a bit of an asshole, and then came back to WWE. So he had all the spokes on the wheel of his character by the time he got there. As Dan said, it was really good to see the actual development getting used to the, the big production value, but it was also kind of refreshing as well. You kind of see the TNA AJ, but you're just seeing him on a larger scale. And, you know, TNA had about 400 people in the audience on an average for an impact taping, where he's wanting arenas to hold 14, 15,000, and he's getting to see what he always feared when you watch the AJ documentary that nobody knows him. And as Dan said, you know, he walked in. It didn't matter just that night, it was every arena. Everyone was just chanting AJ Styles. You know, it, it, was, it was a beautiful thing to see. It definitely changed the landscape of WWE. I was still quite into the wrestling, but I was always like, oh, John Cena's the guy. And I always had this idea of it's very McMahon styled. It, was, it had to be ripped, six pack, tall, big guy to be the world champion. And you see him and you're just like, that's the world champion right there. He doesn't have to be the big guy, you know, and he, he changed that. And I know people have said he's not had, had the same heights as he has in like TNA in Japan, but I don't necessarily think that's his fault in regards to his technical ability. I think it's because a, some of the guys WWE have just aren't as good technical as he is, and B, I think they hold him back as well. And I would just love to see like a six-month run of AJ being told, do what you want, go crazy. Like, give him the title and go, right, you get six months of the title, you can have anyone you want, do whatever you want, see whatever you want, just go. And I think it would be incredible. But I think overall, like, his first year, it was, I mean, it's, it's one of the best debut years ever. You know, he's WWE champion. You know, he's the face of SmackDown. So he said he was drafted to SmackDown as well. The only person that was drafted in front of him was actually Becky Lynch. So it shows what the company thought and they thought, right, we're going to put you on the B show but we're going to make you the face here. And during that time, SmackDown, as it is now, is now was better than Raw. So he, he turned the B-show into the A-show and then became the face of the company. It's amazing. I, I, I'm literally starting to run out of superlatives for the guy. Ah, you hit the nail on the head. It's like, oh, what? I wonder what would happen when you get the best wrestler in the world and make him work with the best company in the world in terms of production and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Oh, turns out it worked really good and we got an amazing five years of it. Tune in next week as me and Alan book the next year of AJ's career. <laughs> no, I promise. I promise you get at least one week off from him. So um, we've got a show for booking stuff anyway. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Daniel, you wanna you wanna plug that? You wanna tell us the details, the YouTube's and okay, I know how to do this, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> book it returned at the end of June. Sarah Grieve in a fantastic match. Go check it out on YouTube and coming up very shortly. Since we have mentioned WWE and TNA. It is very appropriate that you will see Jack Graham and Scott McLeod booking a June 2010 WWE versus TNA pay-per-view. Wait for it at the end of July. Hey, I like it. Hopefully, 
all of these things pan out. <laughs> so they'd I told better, or they I'm better. gonna hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I told the gang before the show that they could class a debut as basically whatever you liked, and it could be a gimmick change, a re-debut, or a jump to a different company. And Sarah, I realized your pick kind of has a little bit of all of that. So take it away. What's your most impactful debut moment? Um, well, my impact, uh, impactful debut, it came from just the fact of this is a more shock factor. Um, and once I go a little bit more into it, it does make sense. But it was Kenta's return to New Japan. Well, it's not even a return to New Japan. He went to New Japan and appeared at Dominion in 2019. So we all know his run in NXT was sort of... As Hideo Tami riddled with injuries and like a whole bunch of luck. Um, and he just never really got off the ground in NXT. So in 2019, when he he actually like he showed up, Shibata came out. Obviously, no one really knew what was going on until he turns around and basically points at his own Titantron. And Kenta appears out and just sort of comes down to make some form of announcement. Now, the, the fact that this was more surprising... And it's, it's more because of traditional. Um, Kento made his name in Pro Wrestling Noah um, as opposed to in like the New Japan dojos and everything. Um, and generally, Japanese wrestlers tend to remain loyal to whatever company brought them up. Um, and it was always kind of seen as a either you're the outsider. There's been a few people that have come through different wrestling dojos that it had to take a little bit extra time for them to gain respect. When Kenta's come out, there's a there's a big pop at Dominion because people are just more shocked, more or less, to see him. And this is when he announces that he is going to be taking part in the G1 Climax. And this basically carries on to what was the biggest heel turn of the year in New Japan, where he joins Billy Club. I think for me, just for Kenta, the fact that not only just a big pop for people, but it was the fact that he broke the mold in Japan sort of tradition. Obviously the fact that he's like in his forties, that he's going to have a lot of respect for the actual companies and respect for the sport. And obviously he's been basically endorsed (laughs) by Shibata, uh, not Shibata, Kwaku, when you're listening to this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is what made it more impactful for me, even though he only just appeared and made one quick statement and and then walked out again. I like this choice, Sarah, because you obviously knew that I was hosting this show. Around this time, I was working for a company who decided to stop paying me. So I decided to stop going in and spent the next like month and a half with my feet up watching New Japan Pro Wrestling. And so I watched Dominion and the G1 and I watched Kenta come out. And it was weird because obviously... He made his name All Japan, Noah. He was one of the best Japanese wrestlers of his weight class because I know everything's done by like that yep. sort of thing, juniors and uh, heavyweights and stuff like that. Goes to WWE, Hideo Itami doesn't really work out, goes to New Japan, and he basically becomes the character that he always wanted to be in WWE. Like he had his match at the Royal Rumble kickoff show that year. And then five months later, he turns up with Shibata, which is an instant way to get you over because Shibata's the absolute heartthrob of New Japan Pro Wrestling. For people that don't know, he like had a huge heavyweight title match that he'd been working towards like his whole career. In the match, his like 
chest exploded and uh, he was out as a wrestler. And for him to come back and put over Kenta was like a massive deal. And this was also the second G1 that I watched. And it's very, very difficult to get yourself over in a G1 because it's a block where all the best wrestlers have to win to progress. And he went on that tear of like, I think it was four wins out of his first four matches. Um, he eventually lost his last five, so he obviously didn't win the block. But I just remember being like, this is what he should have been doing in WWE and NXT. It makes me think, like, I've always thought, what do you do with these wrestlers that are just phenomenal wrestlers but can't talk? Like, they're terrible at talking. Send them to New Japan. It just always works out there. That's why Brock was so phenomenal there after his run in WWE. That's why... Shinsuke Nakamura was phenomenal there and wasn't quite as good in WWE. So yeah, enough for me. I love this pick. I thought that Kenta was amazing in that G1. And we've not even gotten to the whole other bit of his character where he joined Bullet Club and turned on Shibata and became an asshole. <laughs> um, spoilers for two years ago, Japan. But Daniel, <laughs> did you watch this period in New Japan? And what did you make of Kenta? And how much better than Hideo Itami was it? <laughs> I can tell that you're going to get a lot of material from me and Alan in the next couple of minutes. (laughs) I don't really watch New Japan myself, but I was aware of Kenta's presence in the Japanese wrestling scene. And when he came to NXT, there was a lot of promise with him. Because I mean, I think his first main pay-per-view match was a tag with Finn Balor when he was debuting as well. And he had a lot of promise to deal with. I remember they had him in 205 for a wee while. He was putting on some solid matches. And, you know, he's, he had star qualities. Just like, again, like, you know, what can we do with him? They just didn't see any potential for him. Yet the writing was on the wall. Just let this guy be himself. So sure enough, he returns to Japan. He gives an assault performance in the G1 Climax. And then Bullet Club came knocking. And it's one of those situations where someone makes a move for their career and they just don't look back. I think it's safe to say it's worked out well in the end. Alan, did you watch any of this? And what do you think of what do you think of how much better he was than he was being Hideo Itami? Well, the WWE, I pretty much consider him a bit of a jobber. At the time you're looking back, it's completely ignorant. But at that point, I really didn't know much about New Japan, to be honest. So it was, it was really WWE and TNA, that was it. I was skewed in TNA. And I just thought this guy's a job. He's not going anywhere. And then he goes to New Japan. And I've just I, I just did a wee bit of research here and I've looked at in that uh, G1, he fights Tanahashi, Lance Archer, Evil, Okada, Sanada, Will Osprey, Zack Sabre Jr., who I've all heard of and I've seen, and they're all phenomenal. That is quality. They talk about he goes to Japan and they seem to fix it. And he did what AEW had the issue with. Brooks, with, uh, Brooks, Brooks, sorry. Brett Baker is a face with garbage. Brett Baker, the heel, is money. And that's what he did. He must have just realised Brett's the heel. He became the heel. And then it's like, Vincent Man must be going, shit, that man's money. <laughs> you know, he's just like the money's lost. And, you know, she just like the pictures and he just oozes charisma now. He never had that in WWE. And I don't know if that's the way that he was told to be or just maybe he still hadn't really developed that until he could see you look at the guy that oozes charisma, he just looks cool. You see that's how he's in his forty in his forties I'm going, ah bollocks look googled it there. I he's forty I'm like, dude looks younger than me, I'm thirty two. I mean come on, he's a fucking chance. The guy's class and this is the highlights I've seen in YouTube videos I've seen. He's brilliant and he's a really good pick. 
And I hope if he ever does come back to WWE or if he goes to AEW, don't waste him. If he ever does, let him be what he wants to be. I think he has had a slight flirtation with AEW so far, but with these New Japan wrestlers, you never really know what's going to happen. He might turn up in mm-hmm. Ring of Honor next week or something like that. But Seda, you get to answer to the listeners the most difficult question that always comes up with these shows, and that is, why do you think it didn't work in WWE and it did work before and afterwards? Well, I think with WWE... One, definitely language barrier. Obviously, we know that he's not the greatest with English. There's always going to be that issue, whereas obviously Japanese is his native tongue. He's going to be able to, first of all, communicate no issues to that. But at the same time, you had, like, see people that were in NXT at this time. This is like the Kevin Owens era. That's how they wrote out Hideo Tami originally because he got attacked in the car park by Kevin Owens. Or I don't even think they even admitted it was Kevin Owens um, around about that time. So that was like the Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn era. And then you've got Finn Balor, Samoa Joe, Shinsuke Nakamura coming in at this time. It just so happened to be probably maybe the wrong time. There was a big deal when coming to sign him. But there's also the thing where a lot of people prefer playing the heel because it's a lot easier to make people hate you than to make them like you. Turning on Shibata and attacking him alongside Bullet Club was the best thing for him, obviously, and the fact that his finishing move is to go to sleep. It's not exactly a babyface move either. Yeah, brilliant. I I liked all three of your choices. I think we could have gone down the route of, you know, Jericho or John Cena or Kane. So I enjoyed going down a couple of different avenues permission to chime in with one of my own and uh, i thought and I, this is what this is why i wanted to go last right so sarah imagine kenta turns up at dominion but he's actually carrying the nxt title <sighs> or imagine that night aj styles turns up at the royal rumble but he's actually holding that beautiful new japan heavyweight title that they got rid of that i love And they should never have done. That's a story for another day. Well, for my choice, this actually happened. It was September 9th, 1991. Ric Flair turns up on primetime wrestling in the WWF alongside Bobby (laughs) Keenan. But they did not come alone as Ric Flair legitimately turned up holding the WCW title or the NWA title, which, you know, delete as appropriate, whichever one it was at the time. Just the significance of this is, I think, is huge. And I love watching this back. It's not like the Medusa with the bin and the women's title thing. Like this was physically parading about the biggest and most beautiful heavyweight title there is in wrestling on WWF television. It didn't last. I think it lasted like a couple of weeks or maybe a month, something like that. But him just going straight for the jugular on Hogan and Rowdy Roddy Piper from the second he stepped in the company, this should have led to the main event of WrestleMania 8. But sadly, both guys shot the bed and didn't want to fight each other. It just gave us this phenomenal moment. Ric Flair, Bobby Heenan holding up the WC title on WWF television. I always remember it. And we didn't get the match to which we deserved. So, yes, have you guys seen this clip? Daniel, have you seen this one before? That video of Bobby Heenan holding the WCW title on WWF TV? I have, yeah, and it's, it is a, quite a jarring sight to see Ric Flair on WWE TV with the WCW Championship. What's more interesting as well is the actual story behind it. 
which is that at the time WCW was um, they had a new person in charge and it was a guy called Jim Heard. Now, if anyone would like to have an, a good knowledge as to why Jim Heard running wrestling company is a bad idea, imagine the guy who gets eliminated the first in The Apprentice running a wrestling company. In fact, imagine a guy who hosted the US version running a wrestling company. There's an even worse image. Jim Heard thought Ric Flair was getting stale. Apparently, the nature boy, styling, profiling, was not getting over in his mind. So he thought, you know what, I've got a great idea. Let's have him shave his hair, wear Roman gladiator armor, and call himself Spartacus. To which Ric Flair, quite rightly, said, piss off, and decided to leave. Not only did he leave, he took the title with him. Because at the time, whoever was the world champion could actually keep the belt with him. So as far as he was concerned, it was going with him to WWE, and it did. It's brilliant. I love listening to this story every time it happens. Ric Flair had a significant gripe, like there was a deposit he had to put down on the belt and he never got that money back, so why not hold on to it? But yes, Alan, have, have you seen this clip? It, it's mad to think, I don't think this will ever, ever happen again. Touch wood, <laughs> this will never, ever, ever happen again. I hope I've jinxed it. I hope someone turns up with the AEW world title somewhere. This is ultimate shit house, It really <laughs> is. I mean... Rick Flair's no got a bit of fear in him, right? He doesn't give a shit. And the fact that he just walked out like he owned the place, like he owned the title, and just thought, I'm here, let's go. That is just nature boy. That is him right through. Because he has the same on camera as he is off camera. That is just him. It's just so good to see. It's brilliant. Absolutely love that. And I mean, very few people in wrestling would have the balls to even attempt it. I could never imagine like Stone Cold going to WCW the WWF title. No chance. He might be the toughest set will be in the WWF, but he's a big shite bag. He wouldn't have done it. Rock wouldn't have done it. Take it. There's just nobody out there. The only person I'd think would legitimately give it a go in the current era would be Randy Orton. Mm. He's yeah. the only one I think would have the balls to do it. And that's kind of because he's had the Ric Flair influence all through his career. But yeah, total shit house. They absolutely love it. Sarah, it's interesting because I think this was part of a period where Ric Flair could probably legitimately argue that he was a bigger star than the NWA was at this time. So if anyone was going to do it, it was going to be him. I mean, yeah, definitely. In response to like what Alan said, I think we all probably would have thought CM Punk would have been the one to do it. Seeing as, um, you know, left Chicago, ran um, home right after that and put the belt in his freezer. Because <laughs> that's like legitimately what he did after his final match. Because imagine him turning up in like TNA or something around about that time. In terms of Ric Flair being like a bigger star than the NWA is absolutely true. Because let's just face it, like, yeah, he's right. He had to put down like a deposit on that belt to be bolted with him. It's like a security deposit. I mean, unless he damaged the belt, it's a security deposit. You get it back. Technically, I'm borrowing it. I'm just taking it with me. Yes. Like, that is that mentality. Um, and obviously, it's a big, big get, considering, like, the career that Ric Flair not only had before WWE, but the whole, he just basically shot off to arguably being one of the greatest of all time. I mean, he's one of the very few that is a multiple-time Hall of Famer. So, you can't blame him. I mean, <laughs> plus, with the whole persona, like, we don't even know half the time if he was in character or just acting himself, because I know the man's got an ego on him. It was probably just like, you know what, I'm untouchable. These people are offering me what I want and more. So, yeah, of course, I, I, if, I, if I was Ric Flair, I probably would have done the same. 
It's phenomenal. And just another iconic debut moment. Right, okay, so in part two now, we're going to get another debut from you, but we're going to spin it on its head a little bit. So we've done our favorite moments, and instead of us now going around and doing like our second favorite moments, I thought we'd get you to do something slightly different. So I've asked you to pick out your favorite sort of debut eras. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean a wrestler's exact first moment in the company or any company. But why don't you give me someone who maybe had a great month or a great year to start their run? You know, someone like Kurt Angle's first year in WWE or something like that. So over to you guys, and we're going to attempt to stick to this chronologically once again. So we're background to Daniel. Give me yours. There was a lot of change happening at the turn of the century. And the biggest sign of that was when four guys jumped from WCW to WWE and made a massive impact right away. I am talking about the lovely Merry Bunch. This includes a guy called Perry. It <laughs> is the Radicals, that being Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, Eddie Guerrero, and Chris Benoit. The story with this is, all four of them were in odd positions in WCW coming out of it. There wasn't much going for Saturn, Malenko, and Guerrero. They weren't happy with things. And Benoit was in the world title picture, but they weren't too keen on him. And also uh, a guy that he had a little problem with called Kevin Sullivan was the booker again. So they weren't feeling too confident about things. They wanted out. And in a last-ditch effort to try and keep Benoit in the company, they actually give him the WCW championship. But the next night, he's like, no, my, my mates are going. I'm going. I'm like, we're not staying. And at the time, WCW did want to put a no-compete clause of some kind on each member of the Radicals. However, Guerrero mentioned in his autobiography, he overheard a member of staff threatening the Radicals. And so Guerrero took that to management and managed to get an unconditional release meaning they could just do whatever they wanted right away. Fast forward to the following week. And there they all sit in the front row overall, and they end up laying waste to the folk in the ring. Beautiful scenes all around. Then let's look at the year we had. We had Malenko being a creepy bastard with Lita. Normal action era stuff. <laughs> Eddie Guerrero found his mamacita in China. Fantastic pairing right away there. And just laid such beautiful groundwork for their characters going forward. Benoit ended up in the world title picture going into autumn. He was competing a one pay-per-view with The Rock, Kane, and Undertaker in a fatal four-way. He was doing solo performances all year round. Perry Saturn had an infatuation with a mop. You know, you can't get a, an even balance, I suppose, on most things. But undeniably, the Radicals, in, in their own ways, each had a great year because they got to showcase what they could do. They got storylines that allowed them to do some new things. Well, in the cases of that we know of Guerrero and Benoit, they end up having some great runs following it. Obviously, we know how, unfortunately, they have ended. But considering the run that they had in that initial year, best way to start it. Yeah, I think this is a really good show because, like, as you say, the scenario that they got these four guys in is unprecedented, never before, and will never be seen again. <laughs> Being able to leave a wrestling company and the next day all being able to just do what they liked because they got out of those contracts because of the whole bullying thing. I think this is phenomenal. I think that the mental thing is, is I have 
such like fond memories of the radicals even though it lasted like was it a year just just less than a year or something like that and they all had their moments like they all went off in different angles different going after different belts of course and i think it was a really good way to just get these four guys introduced to the wwf audience very very quickly like when i look back now i, I think of these guys as four original wwf guys but they were all in wcw and other companies for much longer before that so yeah it was a really good way to establish these characters very very quickly alan this was around the time you would have been watching so what did you make of this i mean i can't believe daniel picked there i mean three jobbers i mean perry saturn's the only real credible one in this group <laughs> you know what i mean or future Hall of Famer. No, and, um, no, I say it's a good pick. I mean, I, I was never the biggest fan of the Radicals. Um, I, it was nothing, I just, they just didn't really sit with me. But looking at them from an analytical point of view, yeah, they did have a good year. They did do well. Um, you know, Benoit had some really good matches, as you mentioned, there with the Rock, take on that. Um, it, as you said, Eddie Guerrero and the China stuff is actually really funny. And you just look at it and you're going, you couldn't get away with that. You couldn't do that shit there. You just couldn't. The only thing is, actually, Malenko and Saffron never really got going for me. I think they kind of wee bit like they're not too much carrying them. But, you know, Malenko was on these technical rests. I just think it feels for me personally, it's there any personality put over. Whereas Perry Saturn had the personality and the quirkiness, but didn't really have the wrestling ability. So if you put them two together, you might want another one. But I mean, it's a good pick. It's not what I personally pick, but they have been enjoyable. And they, as you said, they did have a good sort of one for a year or so. It's a, it's a good choice then. Uh, Sarah, do you have you seen any radicals stuff in your time? And what do you think of these uh, four guys together? I remember Daniel went and put something on last night, but I was half asleep, and I just remember seeing them, and I was just like, "Oh my god, that's Eddie Guerrero." But I do remember watching like their debut and how dare they attack Steve Blackman, first of all, like <laughs> the king of all that is kings. Obviously, the way that like they sort of went on to have really good careers, especially Eddie Guerrero being like probably one of the most popular wrestlers of his time. And obviously Chris Benoit had the potential to be probably one of the greatest of all time. Bringing them in and having like this sort of like own attitude kind of works, considering it was the attitude era at this point. They did well, and obviously they've all, maybe besides Perry Saturn, because I'd never heard of him until maybe about four weeks ago. Mm. That's the sort of way it works. And like even when you look at like their championships between them, like just the fact that they never, you know, became tag champions. Yeah, that seems strange. Like I just had to look that up. I was like, I'm sure they held the tag belts, but no, I, I don't. I don't think so. But I mean, the cool thing about this is, and obviously the scenario that happened afterwards excluded. There was an iconic shot at WrestleMania 20 of Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit both holding up the world titles at the end of the show. And that would never have happened had the WWF not given the Radicals that chance in early 2000. If we omit a lot of details that come after that, it's a nice moment to witness in wrestling, which we can attribute to the Radicals who had a brilliant first year so thank you daniel for that brilliant pick we will roll on now we're going to fast forward to 12 years alan there was a fairly significant debut in 2012 which ended up sort of changing up the wwe at the time quite significantly oh absolutely so i think for me this is possibly the most important faction in the history of the business because they changed the game for so many and they are the poster boys of NXT. Yes, it is the Shield. 
what they accomplish is just nothing short of spectacular, and they're still at the top of their game today, nearly nine years later. They come in and affect the triple threat match at Survivor Series, as they are, well, let's be honest, if you're going to start your career well, you may as well be a Paul Heyman guy, which they were. They were the Paul Heyman guys. They were the mercies for CM Punk, putting Ryback through the table, destroying Cena, and helping Punk retain the title. They had that run as well. They kept Punk for the title in his long reign. The run from the day they debuted, for six months, they were unbeaten. And, you know, extreme rules, all of them won a title. They were all champions. So you had Dean Ambrose, who is one of the longest reigning US champions of all time. I think he was literally a week short when he dropped it, of being a year-long champion. And then you had Seth and Roman as tag team champions. Every one of them is a future Hall of Famer. Every one of them is a Grand Slam champion. Yes, one's not there. John Moxley, a.k.a. Dean Ambrose, is now one of the top guys in the rival company, AEW. But they were a perfect unit. I mean, they actually, for me, revolutionised tag team wrestling. As it's no secret, I'm not the biggest tag team wrestling fan, especially when it comes to WWE. But they managed to help with the Wyatt family. Their matches were the matches you actually gave a shit about. It didn't matter if they were on first, in the middle, or the last. They were the ma- That was the match you wanted to see. You wanted to see these six guys tear each other apart because the crowd would go absolutely nuts. Another reason for me, they, they came out from the crowd. We hadn't seen that since Ed and Christian. Nobody was doing it and it was so unique. And the three of them just as a, a unit, for me, this is how I always felt. Them. Ambrose was the one you wanted to listen to. Rollins was the one you wanted to see wrestle. And Reigns was the one you wanted to be the champion to lead them. That's the way I always looked at it. Again, so everyone's got their own personal opinion on it, but that's how I looked at them. Ron Smackdown were never great until they appeared. And, you know, the crowd had instant chemistry with them, instant reaction. You know, there were the heels, and then they became faces, you know. The other thing I love about it as well, Money in the Bank, 2016, all three of them were the champions within two minutes. They've had incredible careers. I think they're part of the reason where you've got guys like, AJ Styles have came in because, yeah, Roman's going to look at your usual physical chiseled, ripped champion. But, you know, Rollins doesn't really have that look. Ambrose certainly doesn't have that look. But they kind of paved the way for guys like AJ Styles to come in. Another wrestler have came in and won the title and maybe haven't looked physically the best, but they may have had some nails with their character or their technique or whatever. And they're just so strong. There was no weakness, you know. And one of their greatest matches was against Evolution the night before they split, and it was a clean sweep. So it shows what they were thought of in the back, and they thought, especially Triple H, because apparently Triple H was the one say, you have to push them over, they have to take us out clean in a row, we don't take any of them out. So they eliminate them all, and then, obviously, a very, very sad day when, you know, Seth turned heel, the bastard. But we, got, but, we, but we got them back, and yes, it wasn't the same, because they were a bit different, and they'd all had their rivalries with each other, but... They really shook up WWE where you could believe guys from NXT can come up here and actually stand toe-to-toe with the main roster and actually beat them and be the guys. And these guys were the guys and are still the guys. If John Moxley ever left uh, AEW and come back to WWE, it would slot right back in, in that world title picture, whether it be Raw SmackDown. He would be the guy in that show, hands down. Yeah, I think this is the modern era's best faction, probably wrestling's best ever faction. I think that the fact that none of these guys relied on the other one 
for single success showed how great they all were as individual wrestlers. The group as a whole, when they went on that brilliant undefeated streak for God knows how long it was, just collecting belts along the way, taking out everyone from The Rock to CM Punk to Ryback, who obviously was a big name at the time. It was just brilliant to watch. Again, it was one of those things that at the time just dragged me back to watching wrestling. The the only blip on The Shield's entire run is the fact that they were involved in the mess that was the end of CM Punk's title reign, which as a big CM Punk fan, I will never be happy about. But yeah, just fantastic. (laughs) Just reading the thing here. Seth Rollins, first one of the three to win a world title. Roman is different from Seth because he's won loads of world titles. And then Dean is different from them as well because he was the first one to become Triple Crown and Grand Slam. So they all approached it in different ways. They were all phenomenal. And I really hope that one day we can get Seth and Roman as the top title holders in WWE. Well, John over, <laughs> over at his pal's house at AEW can hold the title there. I feel like the wrestling gods should make this happen at some point in the future, but I don't know whether it will happen or not. Sarah, everybody in the world has some sort of slight soft spot for the Shield. What did you make of them as a faction? You've hit the nail on the head. It is the best modern faction that WWE have even come close to doing. And like it's the same now, like having the factions at the moment. You won't have anything that will ever come close to the shield. Um, and it always does make you wonder what would have happened if it had been Cassius Ono as opposed to Roman Reigns. <laughs> um, it definitely wouldn't have not had that much of an impact and probably wouldn't have gone on as long. So I'm actually really, really surprised that they never tried to introduce the trios championship or even like six-man belts. Because obviously that's, that was really, really popular and it still is in Japan where they have like lots of different factions. It doesn't even have to be the good guys against the bad guys. It's just literally a collection of people that can come and go because you can easily have Roman and Seth creating their own random factions uh, running around WWE. I would say you're lying if anyone says that you don't have a soft spot for the Shield. I still remember that heel turn from Rollins because, again, nobody's seen it coming the day after beating Evolution. There's just like, there's always a plan B. You're like, when the hell did that happen? (laughs) But in terms of like going on for their career, so yeah, like John Moxley, formerly known as Dean Ambrose, was one of the longest reigning United States champions. Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, like they all went on to have great careers. And like, even though John Moxley is now obviously part of AEW, he's still having a, a fantastic career. And I don't think that would have happened if he hadn't been part of WWE, because no, nobody can say what would have happened. And it basically it did, it took off for all of them. Even when, you know, Roman Reigns are kind of getting forced down everyone's throats of being, this is my baby face, this is my Samoan, and that's my worst Vince McMahon impression. <laughs> um, but the Shield, I would say the Shield's a really, really good pick, actually. Like, I'm, I would be fair happy. Like, if Alan decides to do a Mount Rushmore of wrestling debuts, I think the Shield would definitely be up there as one of, like, the most, not only impactful, but biggest impact going forward on, like, on the long run as well. They don't add it to the list. <laughs> a good one, actually. Mount Rushmore of everything. Imagine that you do the Mount Rushmore of factions, so it's got sixteen faces on it. The guys are like, "Ah, this is going to be a financial nightmare." That is a show that will be coming up eventually one day. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of Mount Rushmores left in the season. Yeah, this season. Yeah. trust me. You can add it to like the heel turns as well. I know I've already done like the greatest heel turn show, but you can do like the Mount Rushmore of heel turns and have Seth Rollins' face just all over it. 
Yeah. I'm literally looking for it so I can add it in just now. Daniel, I was just thinking, right, and we, we, you know, we've spoken extensively about how these guys were good individually and together, but has any other faction produced as many solid world champions as this? Like, I was thinking NWO, probably two, Hogan and Kevin Nash, and then DX, two again, Triple H and Shawn Michaels, even the four horsemen, only one of them was ever a significant world champion. Like, is this the best product of wrestlers to come from a faction ever well we, there was one group that was mentioned earlier with the shields run that they had because let us not forget that while the shields were the big thing in 2012 in 2004 evolution passed everyone by and look at that list triple h randy orton batista nature boy rick flair need i say more yeah that's probably the closest and then my only retort would be yeah. A significant chunk, but not all, a significant chunk of Evolution's success came before they were in Evolution. Whereas mm-hmm. the Shield, where the... Sh- oh, do you know what? This is a story for another day. Great <laughs> debut here from the Shield. <laughs> we are going to run out of time if we keep on going with this. But yes, brilliant choice, Alan. Absolutely love it. Mm. And because we are stupid, sexist pigs, we have left out all of the beautiful women on the wrestling landscape. So last but not least, we've got one that's sort of ongoing, Sarah. I I quite like this. Your pick is from 2020. And when I was doing my research, I was like, oh, there's no end on this one. This is just a great debut that's just now as well. (laughs) Yeah, and obviously this is why um, I I said earlier that obviously I didn't pick the Shields because my pick is uh, Diona Perrazzo's uh, return to Impact in 2020. It is still currently ongoing a year later, well, near enough a year later. So obviously, Diona just made her return to Impact after having like a very, very underwhelming run with NXT. Obviously, we were, me probably most of all was quite excited when she got signed to NXT, bringing in the virtuoso character, and I loved her. Like she's probably without a doubt one of the best technical wrestlers out there today. Not just female, but actual like proper technical wrestling. So when she had a, an, an initial vignette, she made a sort of nice, impactful debut just after Jordan Grace had defeated Tyler Valkyrie to retain the Knockouts Women's Championship. Diana Perazzo just makes her way out and essentially just attacks Jordan Grace with the Fujiwara armbar, asserting her dominance and went straight into the title picture for Slammiversary where she won the title against Jordan Grace. She's went on to do near enough everything that you could do as a women's wrestler just within the past year. Like being a two-time knockouts champion in the space of a year as well. It's a good ongoing thing because she's ran her way through pretty much everybody. So she's defeated Rosemary. She's defeated Sue Young was the person to obviously take the title off of her. Um, but then she very quickly got that back after a no DQ match. She's managed to beat Jordan Grace. She has beaten Taya Valkyrie. She's beat Rosemary. She's also had the point of ending Jazz's in-ring career, which is one of the big things to do. And she's also ran her way through people like Havoc, Nevaeh. She's literally went through the entire knockouts division currently over at Impact. I think she's actually defeated everybody that is possibly there maybe apart from Kimberly, because Kimberly's been her pal since the very beginning. Who knows, that might change, considering that she's now walked away. Like, as time of recording, she's taken on Susan in a non-title match. 
So Susan, obviously known as Sue Young, one of the many faces of Sue Young at the moment. I think just the fact that this is ongoing, but it's the fact that she also competed and won the first ever 30-minute women's Ironman match in Impact history. And she's continuing to put match on after match since making that return. Like, and in fact, it's still ongoing even like a year later and there seems to be nobody that can touch her. It's, it's definitely one of the ways that Impact know how to make a star, in my opinion. Yeah, this is a phenomenal pick. I'm so happy you got this in here because I think it was just a few weeks ago on the World Champions show that some of the guys were talking about how TNA doesn't have many guys at the moment. It doesn't have many stars. There's there's no there's no denying it. I think that's one of the reasons why they put the belt on Kenny Omega because they don't have a lot of guys who can carry the name themselves. Diona is single-handedly carrying this company on her back. Like... I will be the first to admit I was a big fan of TNA, but she was in TNA for three pretty dark years in the mid-10s. Didn't see any of it, never even heard of her. I knew that she was in NXT for a bit, did not know that she was there for six years. I will be the first to admit, haven't seen a single match of hers. But why was she so good in Impact Wrestling? Well, in the space of a year, because looking at the date that we're recording this, it's a year and a handful of days. She just battered everybody. As you said, there was that opening promo with Jordan Grace, just about takes her arm out of her socket. She batters, sorry, she loses to Sue Young, gets the belt back immediately, beats Rosemary, beats Taya Valkyrie, beats ODB, beats Tanel Dashwood, ends Jazz's career, beats Havoc, beats Rosemary again. <laughs> There's absolutely no end in sight for her. It's phenomenal. It's the WWE must be absolutely kicking themselves. Why, Sarah, why do you think they let her go in the first place? Was this a COVID cut and was she just not doing anything in NXT this time? Well, I think she was one of the sign-ins originally that was like when they started doing the whole rounding up the Indie Darlings. And I remember that she she was one of the original Rosebuds with Adam Rose. Like this, this is how far back it dates. Again, she was used as a squash opponent for Nia Jax. She was used as a squash opponent for Asta. And then she was used as La Luchadora originally before it was revealed further down the line because you, you could all tell that that was definitely Diana Perazzo that was in that suit. She did the Mae Young Classic. And then I remember she was doing small matches, but it was more house shows. She did temporarily help Chelsea Green in a couple of her matches when she was there. Um, obviously, we basically, they are best pals. She did NXT UK as well, because like, they just sort of dotting her around. At this time as well, they had signed shots to Blackheart, and that was one of the biggest deals that they had made, because William Regal had went to Evolve specifically to sign her. Obviously, there was a lot of women, and the fact that WWE just wanted to round off all these indie folk. And then there was also speculation that people believed that she wasn't ready for TV. This is the whole thing that she was signed to NXT when it was still in its developmental part. So they could have had everything to try and push this. And that if like, this is what the whole development thing was for. If it didn't work, figure something else out. And this is when she brought the virtuoso character, but she never got a chance to shine. So when she was released, we were like, right, okay, we don't know where she's going to end up. Didn't really think much of it. So when she appeared at Impact, I, I, was, I was really happy. It is really, really hard to sort of pinpoint where it went wrong. And I don't believe it was on her in the slightest. It was nah. just she got signed so that no one else could have her. Yeah. And you can tell by the tear she's gone on since she went to Impact that 
it clearly wasn't her being a bad wrestler. Alan, did you see much of her in WWE? And have you caught any of her Impact stuff? She has dominated women's wrestling Impact. She's very entertaining. She said she's a fabulous technical wrestler. Her matches have been entertaining. I've really enjoyed it. The only fear I have for her is because her made her so dominant and Impact doesn't really have anyone there to take a title off her. They've mm. shot themselves in the foot a wee bit. But again, the company seems to be trying to grow, so they may have somebody else coming in, lined up, or a big push coming, whatever. But it's a cracking pick. She is brilliant. She's, right now, she's definitely one of the top five female wrestlers in the world. And I'd probably say she's definitely in the top 20 wrestlers in the world right mm-hmm. now. So she's up there, you know, really like AJ Styles, you know, <laughs> me putting myself in. <laughs> but, you know, she's absolutely class. And it, it just shows, Triple H is usually a very good judge of character when it comes to people coming to NXT and developing them. And I think you're right, see, that it's just a case of, She's there, we don't anyone getting her, so we're just going to hold her ransom for ransom, basically. And it's a piss poor decision in WWE's part mm. because she could have done so much in NXT. She usually could have helped, especially right now, the Raw Women's Division, which I don't think is particularly great. She could have been a star in that. And Daniel, as well, the interesting thing about this is what you will get by going to Impact is yes, she may have done her whole roster, absolutely smashed a lot of them but she could still have potential matches with all the NWA's female wrestlers and all of New Japan's female wrestlers and all of AEW's female wrestlers. So now that you're outside of that WWE sphere, you all of a sudden have this option to go a bit cross-company and do all of that and, you know, make your star even bigger. I mean, she has done solid work with everyone. There's endless names that you just want to put her in the ring with. You look at the AEW women's roster, just for example, tell me now that you would not be interested by a match like, Diana Perazzo versus Hikaru Shida or Britt Baker or, you know, Thunder Rosa, Serena Deep. The list is endless now. Take my money! <laughs> exactly, there you go. So there's a lot of scope for her. And I'll be honest, I actually kind of remember her in WWE. I can't remember if it was in one or both of the Mae Young Classics. And also, fun fact, she actually was on the Raw after WrestleMania 36, being squashed like a bug by Nia Jax. <laughs> I knew that that squash match came at some point, but I had no idea when it was in the timeline. But yeah, yes. there was a brilliant thing I saw she put up, and it was um, the difference in six months. And it's like in one photo, it's her making her entrance on Raw, a Raw that actually had a crowd. She was on a Raw between the Rumble and Mania 36. And then the next photo is her holding the knockouts title at Slammiversary. Just like <laughs> funny how time works. <laughs> so true. These have been some brilliant picks, guys. Well done. I would like to throw in one of my own. I was sitting thinking about this. I was like, who had a really good like entrance to a company? Who went on a bit of a tear when they started? And I wanted to do like, oh, well, Kurt Angle and TNA was great. But then you could argue that he was sort of a level above some of the guys that were there at the time. And I've thought about some other guys like Chris Jericho came in really hot. But then I was like, oh, no, actually, before he got hot, he had a pretty terrible first month. And then I settled on one. A guy who I think had a really brilliant start to his WWF career in, what, 2002? And it's an obvious pick, but I have to talk about Brock Lesnar. He came in the night after WrestleMania 18, I do believe it was, on the 18th of March in 2002. He started out by destroying the hardcore division. Then he destroyed the Hardys. Then he went through King of the Ring and won that by beating Test and Rob Van Dam, I do believe. 
month later, he beats The Rock for the WWF title, 100-something days into being with the company. He is the star of the show before he loses the belt to Big Show and Heyman, which loads of people hated, but I loved because it was the biggest man and the smartest man in the company combined to ever beat him, thus turning him face, allowing him to tear through the roster once again, working his way up to beating Kurt Angle at WrestleMania, and then tearing through the roster again, this time as heel, only to lose to Eddie Guerrero and make Eddie Guerrero a Hall of Famer in the process before disappearing quickly to the NFL. It was a star which burned quite quickly, but uh, one that burned very, very brightly. And I always treat this era of Brock Lesnar like the wrestler Brock Lesnar, different to the later MMA wrestler hybrid that we would get in 2011 or 12, whenever it was. But yes, Daniel, do you remember Brock Lesnar's first run in the WWE? And what did you make of that? My first introduction to Brock Lesnar was him nearly killing himself in a shooting star press, um, <laughs> which is not my ideal way to introduce myself to Brock, but mm-hmm. considering like, his age compared to the rest of his peers on SmackDown at that point, phenomenal talent. That's a, probably an understatement, me just referring to him simply as a phenomenal talent. Paul Heyman, if he was here with us, could exquisitely put it how it should be in terms of Brock's talent. And say what you will, I can see already a face on here ready to tear in the Brock Lesnar in about two seconds. <laughs> um, even in his later run, Brock knew he had a charisma about him. It was just finding a way to tap it. And more often than not, when it was with Heyman, that was the perfect pairing. On his own, he had like some gold moments. The skits with him and Kurt Angle backstage was just absolutely class. They could have like great moments together and then Brock would take everything he learned in the years between that first run in the UFC and traveling even in New Japan, come back to WWE, now aware of his presence on the, the card, aware of his drawing factor. Since then, even though like he might be away for a significant part of a year if he's booked for like shows, he knows he is a top level attraction and they present him as such. And the groundwork for that was laid in that original run, so... I can't really fault it. Yeah. Uh, Alan, fan or not fan of early Brock Lesnar? Ah, pre-mating call. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) Oh, oh, I forgot about that. This is proper Brock Lesnar. First off, explain the mating call. (laughs) 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 It made that stupid noise. It went so high-pitched. And it was actually on the Brock Lesnar show. (laughs) <laughs> and I did a rant, which I'm not going to repeat, but I did a rant about Brock Lesnar. And Stevie told Quack to edit part of that out. And the bit that Quack edited out was the only factual statement in the rant. You can go back and listen to the show, it's great. Yeah, you won't hear the whole thing, but the, one, the bit they actually edited out, because I'm worried about slander, was the only factual thing, and there was thousands of pages on in, one line about it, about his substance abuse. That's what I'm going to say about it. But anyway... That's just proper Brock Lesnar. You know, I didn't like him because he's a guy who took the title off The Rock. Didn't I agree. Like I'm The Rock. I'm The Rock's my guy. But you can't argue with the story and the way they built him up. And yet it kind of looks stupid when he was kind of just demolishing and take him king. You're just like, mm. but when you see him against the weird guys, you're like, fuck, you can really throw that guy out in that ring, like from the other side of the ring. You can really do it. He had the moves. You know, the shooting star press, yes, he didn't nail it. But for a guy that size, £300 to go for it, Takes cojones. You know, this part of Brock Lesnar, I have a lot of respect for. 
the returning Brock Lesnar right after WrestleMania 20 up until Drew kicks his ass at the ring at the last year's Royal Rumble. Mm. No time for him at all. He just didn't look fit. I, I can go on and on about it. Everyone knows my opinion. It just bored me to tears. But this was a really good time for Lesnar. And you kind of see bits of it since the Drew rivalry. Because he actually had an interest. You could see it in him. He was reacting the right way. He was performing the right way. He actually looked up for it. And this, when he was like that, when he first came in, he was an absolute joy to watch. His matches, yeah, all of them are great because he's squashing people. But when he actually got into matches with people, they were actually pretty solid matches. And he was good. The only thing I ever found about Ogg was a guy that size wearing pants. I'm like, maybe he should have went for shorts. You know, personal opinion. Other than that, he, he was solid back then. And on that note, Meeting call. I can now picture it. Now the context I now can picture that. But Mania 29, the that was bar it. match with Triple H, that's where it happened. Yeah, but here's the thing. Brock Lesnar's my height. and Probably my build, but not fat like me. This run before he left and pissed off the MMA, which he was shite at that too. He was good. <laughs> oh, man. We have sidetracked so much. But, Sena, what did you think of early years Brock Lesnar? I think having him team with Paul Heyman, yeah, because we've all heard him try and cut a promo. In my opinion, he is the WWE version of Yoshihashi. He just has no personality to him whatsoever. The only time I've seen Brock Lesnar look even slightly <laughs> like a personality is when he had the Money in the Bank briefcase, pretending it was a jukebox. But any time that you've seen him like try and cut a promo, you're just like, mate, just no. It's also the fact that his sound, the voice that comes out of his mouth, does not match what he looks like. He's scary till he opens his mouth and you're like, oh, you're just a little baby, aren't you? <laughs> you're so cute, I just want to dab your head. Very, very impactful. Like, still like an impactful debut. Definitely needed Paul Heyman with him. And I think, like, I don't know if it's still like the whole debate on if he should have been the person to break Undertaker's streak or not. But overall, when you look at the actual career of Brock Lesnar, we all know that we're all going to pop the next time he comes back because it's been a while and we've forgotten how much we hate him being champion so he'll come back he'll be champion and then we'll like it for maybe like five seconds and then we'll remember going oh wait remember that year-long reign where like nobody could get the belt away from him but we all popped when he came back then and then he went away and then we popped when he came back again and then he went away so we'll probably pop the next time because he's, he's supposed to come and like you know probably be at Bobby Lashley or he'll be running to SmackDown and trying, you know, take back his buddy Paul Heyman from Roman Reigns. It'll be like Paul Heyman on a pole match. <gasps> don't Paul even, Heyman on a pole match. Don't even, don't even. Right, when, we, when we're, we're talking Paul Heyman on a pole matches and comparing Lesnar to Yoshihashi, this, this is probably the good point to end the show. So <laughs> thank you all for your phenomenal picks for most impactful debut. We had... Daniel's brilliant picks of The Radicals and The Undertaker. Thank you, Daniel. I thank you, and I thank Mr. Fuji. <laughs> Master Fuji. Thank you, Alan. Of course, once again, sticking to the gimmick. AJ Styles, phenomenal. And The Shield. Thank you, mate. It'd be phenomenal, as always. And Sarah, thank you for giving us the diversity on in both senses for picking Kenta and Diona Perrazzo. Is that how you say it? Yes, Kenta Diona Perrazzo. Yes, I am always going to be the one that's going to bring diversity to this podcast, especially representing the women and the swans of the world. Exactly. Swan! (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, I threw in Ric Flair and Brock Lesnar as well. <laughs> and with the sound of Brock Lesnar's mating call, that is all we have time for. Join us next time on ESSR. This is going to be a good one, guys. Next time out, we're going to be diving in to the best stables of the 21st century. Alan, Sarah, you're both on that show. So have you got any early shouts you want to get in? I want, I'm going to put my name for for DK. I love Ooh. me some DK. Oh, great. Oh, I like that. I like that. Right. Excellent, guys. That's all for this week. And we shall see you next time out for the best stables of the 21st century. Goodbye. Swan! <laughs> this episode's going to come with its own soundboard. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>